Hey, it's Greg Brady. I'm guest hosting for Kelly this week. Here's what we have on the Wednesday podcast. We talked about the distancing in schools. A lot of people are more comfortable with the high school plan than they are the elementary school plan. Why that is necessarily the growing numbers signing a petition wanting the Ford government to think again and readapt their education plan for elementary schools. And we'll also talk about what's going on with Ellen DeGeneres and a lot of people alleging a toxic environment and not great working conditions on her show in particular. All that is coming up. It's the podcast, and you hope you enjoy it. 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate led to the Beirut explosion yesterday. The Oklahoma City bombers, two tons, and destroyed one building. 286 buildings were uh, shattered, Okay, at least had some damage to it, and 168 people were killed, 680 people injured. Um, we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a bomb blast that's over a thousand times that it's not even in, you know, it's not even comprehensible to think about the destruction and the mayhem. And again, nothing is great timing wise in a pandemic, but there were already huge problems, recurrent power outages, currency problem for Lebanon, an electrical grid that needed updating decades ago. All of it adds up to a massive, massive world tragedy. Timur Azari is uh, a correspondent in Beirut for Al Jazeera, and he's kind enough to join us now. Timur, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much for doing this for us here in Toronto today. Yeah, of course. Of course. Thanks for having me. We're headed to evening uh, now on Wednesday, obviously, with the time difference. Uh, what has the day been like with people looking for loved ones and with uh, you know the best possible scenario that police and fire crews can handle in terms of mitigating some of the damage 24 hours later? Yeah, I mean, it's been a difficult day. Uh, people have woken up to find their city uh, just entirely disfigured, uh, mangled, uh, in parts uh, even unrecognizable. Uh, there's just whole blocks that have been completely destroyed, city blocks, uh, old buildings that uh, have actually withstood, uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire, the French uh, occupation of Lebanon, two civil wars, an earthquake and a famine. Uh, and yesterday, in, in a second, were sort of just completely destroyed. Um, and so it's it's a it's an event like that Lebanon, which you know Lebanon is is has quite prone to crisis, has mm -hmm. a lot of uh, crisis and catastrophe in its, in its past. But this is an event like uh, which it is the likes of which it has never seen before. Um, and so medical crews are are still working to uncover. Uh, you know, people from the rubble, hopefully alive, but fears are growing that they, they will be re recovering bodies. There are still a lot of people missing. Uh, sirens uh, still continue to uh, blare in, in, in parts of the capital. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's looking like the rescue efforts are going to go into the night here. I mentioned the timing of it, and, and again, uh, nothing is ideal in, in 2020 in the crisis we're in, Timor, but this is a city that has stood for 5,000 years. Um, people have lived in it for 5,000 years. It's one of the oldest cities on the planet. It's a tourist destination. And at one point, um, despite all the strife that you referenced and terrorism, etc., uh, it thrived. The, the, middle class, the middle class did actually quite well. That has not been the case for the last couple of years, and this is only going to exacerbate that. Yeah, 100%. So Lebanon was facing at least four crises, a financial crisis, an economic crisis, uh, it was facing a huge political crisis with massive protests and then the coronavirus pandemic, which sort of came in and, and, uh, and really, really just sort of sharpened all of, all of the issues the country already had. Uh, in the past couple of weeks, Lebanon's new coronavirus cases have been increasing at a rate double the world average. Um, uh, hospitals are understaffed, underfunded and have long been uh, so. 
Uh, and now, obviously, they're just facing a, a really difficult situation. Uh, one has to sort of look into the next uh, couple of weeks and, and fear that there will be a rise, almost certainly be a rise in, in new cases, a spike, uh, because it's just impossible to socially distance when you're, when you're trying to save people. And, and when you yourself have been injured, as many of my colleagues have been, um, mm-hmm. you know, apartments destroyed, uh, glass falling onto them. So it's, uh, it's an extremely dire situation. The, the one upshot is that uh, there has been a lot of uh, pledge of, you know, many pledges of international aid. Uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, is coming to town tomorrow. Uh, he's going to be trying to uh, sort of court international aid for Lebanon humanitarian assistance, which we desperately need. I thought about that. I thought that's a big, big statement for Macron to go, uh, especially in these times. Timor Azari, by the way, our guest, uh, Beirut Al Jazeera correspondent, uh, Greg Brady in on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, that's it, a personal question, but do you know where all your colleagues are and where were you when the blast took place? Yes, I do. So in the immediate aftermath of the blast, uh, some of our my colleagues were missing. Turns out a few were injured. One of them was riding a bike towards the, the blast site um, uh, before it actually you know, became a blast site and then I think was knocked off his bike. Um, I was in the mountains right outside of Beirut. There's steep mountains that sort of uh, rise behind the capital. Uh, a friend had sent me a message saying, hey, there's a fire at the port. I looked out of my window and, and my, you, know, I, you can see the port right, right from my window yeah. and uh, started my camera. And about 10 seconds later, this massive explosion just, uh, you know, with a mushroom cloud um, just, you know, happened right in front of me. And it, it, I was just completely awestruck. I mean, you know, obviously shaking. Uh, it, it was like something you, you really see in like those, those old uh, videos of like nuclear mm-hmm. missile testing at some like atoll in, in, in the Pacific, uh, that huge uh, blast wave. Um, and it took about 20 seconds to hit me in the mountains and it was just deafening. Could you hold your, your phone? Could you hold your camera phone? Or uh, yeah, We've seen so much video where, where people have dropped their phones, started to shake, their yeah. buildings started to shake, and obviously they couldn't, get a, they couldn't hold the image, if you will, of, of the blast. No, so I could. I think I was far enough, but it definitely pushed me back. Uh, it shook the building. Uh, and, and, uh, but no, I, I did continue to, to video and then uh, basically drove down. Uh, entered the port and it was just an absolute wasteland. Uh, there, I mean, you couldn't even really get close to the site of the blast uh, because it's, it was uh, still in flames and there were these small blasts happening. Uh, rescue crews couldn't get there until I believe late last night or early this morning. Uh, it was just a wasteland. I mean, cars sort of, you know, thrown three meters high onto like I-beams that were just mangled. Uh, a boat sort of listing sideways, uh, smashed up onto the K-side. Uh, just people kind of wandering around, almost shell-shocked. Um, just a, a scene that, that really, you know, felt like it was, it was out of a, a war movie. So you mentioned the concept of, of uh, you know, international aid, and I, th- I do think most uh, first world countries, most uh, Western European, North American countries are going to be trying to do something to assist because of, of the scope of this. But the struggle I think people are worried about is if, I, if I'm sending money, how do I know it's getting where it needs to get? Because there's issues in, in Lebanon right now. There's obviously people concerned about the government and whether it's, it, it varies between uh, incompetence and some, I mentioned the electrical grid, the transportation, there's a lot of things oh, that, that haven't been updated, but they're worried the money, the money will just go to the wrong places and the wrong people, aren't they? 
Yeah, the Lebanese political class are beggars par excellence. It's pretty much all they know how to do. Every couple of years, they go and beg to the international community after they spend funds on, you know, misappropriation and all kinds of embezzlement schemes. And and this is this is you know uh, not just me saying it. I mean, it's yeah. quite clear in Lebanon that that's the case. Um, and so yes, there is a big fear today that uh, the you know the the Lebanese political class could sort of divert international assistance into its pockets as it has done previously. Uh, that's why people are asking that uh, the the international aid sort of uh, be done directly. So we know that, for example, there's like uh, French uh, aid workers flying into Beirut right now. Uh, you can also donate to the Red Cross. And there are in- initiatives done by people in neighborhoods, community organizers. Basically, the, the, the message from the Lebanese people is help us, don't help the politicians. And so, so you can get a sense mm-hmm. of how much animosity there is between the people and the politicians because of this explosion, because of the fact that ammonium nitrate was sitting in a hangar right uh, you know, outside the entrance to the city for six years without anything being done for it. Um, the top trending uh, you know, hashtag on Twitter right now in, in Lebanon is uh, hang up the nooses um, and, and you know, basically calling for revenge against uh, these politicians. Um, and so there is absolutely no love lost um, between the people and the political class. And yesterday's explosion has only deepened that divide, uh, I- increased the rage. And, and I think that we will be seeing uh, uh, you know, uh, s- some actions, be they protest actions or actions of a of a more, uh, I don't know, sh- you know, less less peaceful manner in the next days, because people are just done. I mean, when you when you when your city is blown up uh, as Beirut was yesterday, um, sure. then then you really, I mean, you really have to sort of stop and say, what are what are we doing here? Why are these people still ruling over us? Yeah, there's so much history there, but it was a city and a, and a country just teetering on the brink uh, with so many issues uh, internally and obviously externally when the value of their currency uh, has lost 80%. It's an unbelievable story. I hope you stay safe, and, and thank you very much for making some time in, uh, in Toronto, Canada today, Timor. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to have our next guest on, but let me tell you first of, uh, I suppose, some uh, breaking news. A uh, good friend of mine, colleague, uh, Jeff Merrick is reporting of course uh listeners would remember him well from 640 his days there as well everything uh everything comes around sometimes uh the ohl he's saying will announce their return to play plan tomorrow okay junior hockey 64 game schedule starting december 1st um playoffs with 16 teams first two rounds best of five they all their rounds have been best of seven. First two rounds best of five well last two rounds are best of seven um, I got two quick thoughts on this. I can run them past our our, uh, our great guest coming up in a sec, but that's December, and I I get it. We're you know three and a half months away. Things might look a lot better by then. They might, but if you're not bubbling, I don't know that sports is going to work with no bubble. And I know these kids don't have to get on airplanes. Sometimes uh, she teams fly in the Quebec League because they're so spread out. Um, and the Western League as well. But OHL teams, I, I did the OHL for seven years on buses. Crowded buses, no less. And that's uh, an issue. And I didn't. I just didn't think it was economically viable to play this league without any fans. Um, maybe I'm wrong. It's sort of like your minor league baseball principles. Um, I, don't, I don't know that it works without fans to do this economically for teams that are going to just... You have to have a gate, right? London Knights fans, you got to have 9,000 people there on a Friday night to make uh, the money that you make. Uh, for the owners in London, Windsor, Kitchener, wherever, it doesn't matter, Oshawa, you got to have fans in the building, uh, paying tickets, paying parking, buying merchandise, buying food and beer. 
Don't know if it works uh, one way or the other. All right. Our next guest is a uh, educator and biostatistician. His work on Twitter has been absolutely fantastic. He had a great diagram of buses yesterday. I don't say that to every guest. Not every guest can put buses, uh, diagrams of buses on their Twitter feed, and I compliment it. Some have been downright terrible in the last uh, 11 years I've been on Twitter. But Ryan Ingram Imgrin, uh, joins us now on Global News Radio. Ryan, Greg Brady, great to talk to you again. How are you, man? Not too bad yourself. I couldn't be better. I couldn't be better. You're doing uh, you're doing yeoman's work out there uh, o- online. You're feeling it. You're active. I like it. I try it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still coming. I'm still going to sneak into one of your classrooms. I know there's distancing issues, and I'm not going to look like a student. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of growth, a little bit of Sonny Crockett growth on my uh, little stubble, but I'll look like an, an older student coming back for a grade twelve course. But uh, I want I want to see you pull this off in school. When you had the, when you heard the announcement last Thursday. A lot of parents said to me, and I felt the same, the plan seems more ironclad, and I'm confident in the high school plan as opposed to the elementary school plan. Is that your read on, on, on what you heard on Thursday? 100%. And so being at a high school and a designated board, I'm not worried at all about going back. I think the fact that we're going to have class sizes of 15 or less, we're going to have groups cohorted. Um, I think it's a really fantastic plan in the designated boards at the secondary level. So the, the transportation you documented, I mentioned the buses, and you documented that you just, I, I remember being on packed buses where everybody had to sit with somebody. You're riding around in the country. If, you're, if you live out in a rural area, it's essential. It's a necessity if your parents can't drive you every day. And I don't know what parent can if they're working. So what, what did you find and, and what did you, you know, take note of that's very contrary to the actual Sick Kids report about transportation? Yeah, first off, there's absolutely no way you can have small numbers of people on a bus, and yet you need small numbers of people on a bus in order for social distancing to be maintained. Even if you have a 35-foot bus with eight people on it, you will not be able to maintain social distancing at all. That's even with having these students staggered, sitting every other row, um, or sorry, or every other second row, you can fit eight on, and there's still not two meters of social distancing. The other thing that I think we need to keep in mind, too, is that in some of these the communities, too, we're going to have these individuals on a bus for a very, very long period of time. It's not a three or four minute ride. For some people, it, it could be 30 minutes, 45 minutes on this bus. So we really need to make sure that we're maintaining physical distancing on this mode of transportation. I would bet you every day I went to school, every day I took a bus, the average ride in and back was 45 minutes. No question. And I wasn't one of the longest kids on the bus. So you're absolutely right. These aren't quick. Basically, if, if it was a 10 minute bus ride, you'd already be in the city or you'd be you'd be able to walk it or ride a bike most days. And most kids don't have that option. Exactly. And I think that's what we need, we need to look at in the urban centers is to find other ways to get these kids to school, whether it be parents, whether it be dedicated bike lanes for these students. Those are the ways that we should be looking at because buses are just not feasible in this kind of an environment. Well, and people will say, uh, you know, what about putting the windows down? What about it? You can do it for about seven weeks and then you cannot anymore. Then you're and then you're risking, obviously, issues of flu, issues of coughing, runny noses. Elementary school kids get on buses. And, you know, Ryan, they have that to begin with anyway. That's a problem. Exactly. And I think rolling down the windows is great, but it's really only a solution for September, October. Mm-hmm. And really what we're worried about most is what these cases are going to look like in in uh November, December, that's what we're worried about. And those are also the times that you can't have those windows rolled down. 
So you've got tremendous confidence going into your classroom, as, as you said. If all, all of a sudden I say, I, you know, I take a magic wand, I make you an elementary school teacher, and you're teaching sixth grade, and you've got 25 kids coming in. Uh, and we heard yesterday from a, a TDS, uh, TDSB board member that they're already hearing from parents saying, I'm sending my kid, but understand this, there's no masks. We don't believe in them. Like, that's a terrible thing that I didn't even think about the consequences of and the reality of last Thursday. But there are going to be families, we can't do anything about it, that are going to be militant about that. 100%. And as the teachers, too, we've got to be cautious about what do we do in a situation like that where we're looking out for our own health, we're looking out for the health and safety of other students, too. What do we do if we have a student that shows up without a mask? And I think those the questions need to be addressed. So did you have some angst and disappointment about the, the report? Because they're, they're laying this out there now saying it's not our plan. It's the experts plan. It's not our plan, a government plan. It's sick kids plan. But some of the recommendations smart people like you made, other smart people made, they didn't get put into practicality on Thursday, did they? The main recommendations were, were actually not stuck into play. And I think that's what's really, really troubling about kind of laying the blame on the like sick kids document. It's not a perfect document, but it's definitely better than the back-to-school plan that the Ontario government has like, put forth right now. Ryan Imgrind is our guest, uh, t- uh, teacher in Newmarket. He's a biostatistician as well. Um, so if you're a parent, um, what are your first instincts, and do you feel enough voices, enough voices of teachers, enough voices of parents could get some modifications made for elementary schools uh, before we hit Labor Day? I'm not optimistic that we are going to be able to make any difference. I think the government has kind of put their foot down in terms of what they want. Um, I don't think we're going to see many changes, but definitely we should see a change with like class sizes or like masking at the younger grades, because going back into a class where we've got 30 students, they're not masked, where it is impossible to maintain physical distancing. That's just a recipe for disaster. I know I mentioned, uh, and I mentioned it on, on Twitter and, and you spotted it, that there's, there's, Parents in Ontario, same age kids, kind of a friend group, maybe people that have already, you know, uh, added to the bubble, getting together. And the thought is, can we hire an educator, either a former educator or, you know, somebody that that we would trust to teach a pod of five or six kids together, at least create some routine and structure during the day, whatever it is, it would be better than what we did online in March and April. Are you hearing those same conversations with parents going, I don't I don't trust going back right now, but I also am not going to let my kids sleep into 11 and, and, you know, play Xbox for five hours. They need the structure and routine that I mentioned. I have heard that. I think that's probably the best idea if there's high risk students or if there's students that are coming from high risk families where it is impossible to go back to school um, or extremely difficult to go back. Then I think those like pandemic pods may be a really good idea to look at for those high risk students. Yeah, I think the obvious things are right. Older folks in in the home. Uh, if if you've got your if you've got if you're a kid and you've got your grandparents living with you, this just seems to be off the table for me. We've already told uh, our four parents and my kids' four grandparents. Look, if they go to classes, you're going to see very. You just are going to go back to seeing very little of us over the span of school. Uh, summer has let us sort of shelter. Summer has let us decide who we who we see and when we want to see. But Ryan, that goes out the window once class starts. And I think that the social bubbles that we have now are going to look very, very different from when school starts, because you're exactly right. A social bubble now that has the grandparents in it will not be able to have that, you know, exact same social bubble come September. It's just way too high risk to have individuals 60 or above 
in the exact same social bubble as someone who goes to elementary school full time is not physically distancing mm. and is not wearing a mask. All right, you you put a great breakdown on your Twitter account. I really uh, I really thought it was fantastic. You're at Imgrund, I M G R U N D on gyms and going back. And now that almost everybody in the province is in stage three, I thought it was just a fantastic breakdown. What are some of the what, you know when you think just about what you're going to do for your own safety? Because it's a total you know. It's a total another can of worms to think about bringing kids or think about showers and locker rooms. If you're just going for a workout, what are the things you're you're hyper aware of and to avoid and not avoid? Yes. So I just want to preface everything with you need to assess your own risk first. That's the most important thing you can do. And you need to understand that what may work for one person is not going to work for everyone. If you're at risk yourself or you're living with someone who is at risk yourself, you need to highly reconsider going back to a gym and you need to look at alternatives first. In fact, that should be the only thing you should be doing is working out like outside, not going back to a gym if you're in that risky environment. If you are going to go back to a gym, I think the first thing you need to look at though and understand is that all you can do is mitigate your risks. Nothing will be like perfect. In the GTA right now, there's a 1% chance that in a group of 50 there's someone that has a transmissible case of COVID-19. So knowing that, mm -hmm. what we need to understand is that even if these gyms are capped at 50 individuals, we may run into someone who has COVID-19. Therefore, we need to minimize our time inside, and we can do that best by looking for alternatives first. Yeah, so well said. So well said. Ryan, thanks very much. Uh, you're doing great work out there, like I noted, and, uh, and I'm glad you shared some of your uh, insights with the audience today. Greatly appreciate it. But I think every parent and everybody associated with the knowledge that everything that we're going to do economically, everything that we're going to do with avoiding you know, more restrictions, a possible lockdown again, is going to live and die with school. Okay, And I'll hear you loud and clear about the importance of getting kids back in. I don't want to return to what last March and April uh, was, not by a long shot, but there are more than enough people that are getting very loud about what they heard on Thursday and saying this this isn't right. And there's a lot of passing of the buck here. The province, you heard the premier say yesterday, well, it's not, you know, we're not the experts, but it's Sick Kids Report. Here's the problem. There's so many guidelines in the Sick Kids Report that the government's not implementing. If this all goes south, Sick kids can then say, well, we recommended these things, but it wasn't implemented by the province. The province is already saying it's not our reported sick kids. You see where this is going here. And there is going to be massive, massive accountability. This is a legacy call, a legacy call for the Ford government and their electability next election in 2022, 2023. You know it. I know it. And more importantly, they know it. All right, enough out of me. Let's get to the phones, 416-870-6400, and we start with Michael. Michael, thanks for the phone call. Thanks for being patient. Go ahead. Okay, hey, good morning, Greg. You know what's really interesting about the Sick Kids report is they said in their recommendations that the government has to basically adopt everything all together, and that was especially smaller class sizes. And I think what the Ford government is really trying to do is sort of really cherry-pick certain things in terms of what they want to do and not do. And I think one of the realities is why they don't want to do smaller class sizes is because they don't have the financial resources to do it. And, and I think back about my elementary school days and even high school days where I spent most of my time in a portable or a porta pack and there was poor ventilation that I just don't see how, you know, 30 students in a classroom is going to work though with, with everything. And, uh, and the more that I think about it, 
I just think we need to do the precautionary principle, when in doubt, don't do it, at least maybe do online learning mm-hmm. for, you know, the fall semester and then reassess for the winter. Yeah, that's the thing. And and we've got two months. I haven't seen one scenario where elementary school teachers are ready to teach outside, are ready to be more active outside. I'm not saying it's easy. None of this is. Like, there's a lot of defense mechanisms being thrown. And I, I'm telling you that if it was an NDP government, NDP supporters would do it. If it was a liberal government, liberal supporters would do it. Hey, it's really difficult. You know, no one's got experience in planning for going back to school in a pandemic. No, they haven't. But there's better methodology of doing it than others. Here's something. I'm glad you brought this up. Thanks for the phone call, Michael. Ventilation. This is from the Sick Kids Report. It is expected that environmental conditions and airflow influence the transmissibility of COVID-19. Adequately ventilated classroom environments. Example, open windows with airflow, improved airflow flow for, through ventilation systems, and reduction in recirculated air are expected to be associated with less likelihood of transmission compared with poorly ventilated settings. Here's the problem. Here's the struggle. There are some classrooms that have adequate ventilation where you can open the windows. There are some that do not. Here's another problem. Let's take the ones that have open windows. You can only do that for so long, okay? Your your kids are going to be learning in winter coats, and that's almost better for them in December, okay, than being in a classroom with no air ventilation whatsoever. So the Sick Kids Report is saying how important ventilated classrooms are There is not going to be any improvement in the ventilation of classrooms, plain and simple. And the cleaning, if you want to get me started on the cleaning, we're going to be here for 10 minutes. Hey, we're going to clean every 12. We're not worried about surfaces. Most of us aren't anymore. I don't You can deep clean everything till, you know, the the end of time. You can you can bring in uh, 10 cleaners with hazmat suits with, you know, everything you need to clean for 12 hours. And make it spick and span, the premier used that term yesterday. It's not going to make a difference if there's droplets being passed through the air with kids without masks on in an environment with no ventilation. Okay, all those things. Uh, Franca, you're on Global News Radio 640 Toronto with Greg Brady. Thank you very much for the phone call. Go ahead. Hi, I'm a teacher and a former principal as well. And I think that this plan simply cannot work. Uh, I don't know how many people have been in a school lately, but realistically trying to manage a five-year-old or a six-year-old wearing masks like how is that going to work um the classrooms are very hot they are not um big enough to have even 30 centimeters of difference then you've got the whole hallway thing we can't use lockers in high school so are the kids going to put their coats on racks outside or do those have to also come into the classroom and then that takes up even more space the ventilation that people are talking about, I don't know if you've been on a school with no air conditioning around this time of the year or even in September, but you can fry an egg on the floor at the best of times. How those kids are going to have to sit there with masks all day? I can't even stand in line at Costco for 45 minutes wearing that mask. Never mind having to sit there through 300 minutes of um, mm-hmm. you know, teaching time. The other thing, They haven't changed the darn thing when it comes to the curriculum. They said to put the kids in cohorts. I agree with that. I also agree with kids having to go back to school. I'm I'm a firm believer of that. But do it safely. Please don't tell me you're doing it safely when you really aren't. So let me ask you, though. I I see your logic. What makes it safer? If I said that they're going every other day in groups of 15, does that increase the idea that it's safe? A lot of people don't mind the high school plan. They they are panicked about the elementary school plan, Franca. 
Yes, the panic. You know what? I've got four grandkids, okay? And one of the biggest things that it's really starting to hit me because you know what? I was a poor kid. My parents are immigrant parents. They sacrificed their whole lives for us to get to where we are. And you know what? Having to go to school when every other kid wasn't going to school, I was one of those kids. And you know what they're actually doing is they're saying, oh, well, if you don't feel safe enough, you can keep your kids at at home. Well, guess what? A lot of parents will have to make a decision. Do I pay the rent and, and put food on the table or do I send my kids to school and stay home with them? You know what? It's going to reinforce cost warfare here. It's going to be the haves against the have-nots. And guess what? It's the poor kids are going to be suffering in, in all of this I, because the parents will have to send them. Yeah, I, I appreciate the phone call. I want to bring something up too, and I mentioned this earlier. I'll get to a couple more calls. But the high school, elementary school difference, And let's say you're a household with two teachers. Someone posted this on Twitter. I copied it down. I didn't copy down the address, but it's prescient. Teacher number one is in high school. They see 20 students a day. That's good. No, that's a good thing. That's the best we can possibly do. That's the most minimal contact. And we are talking about masks. We're going to, I don't know if a high school teacher can lecture in history or biology for six hours without a mask on with, with obviously some breaks in between. Um, but he's a, let's say he's a high school teacher and he's got 20 kids. Let's say he's married to an elementary school teacher and she's going to see in the school because all the interaction is going to be in the school, 300 students. One kid is going to see 20 students a day at high school. The other kid is in elementary school and going to see 25 students. Forget the bubble that you think that family had and how hard we worked to maintain a bubble and how many things we want to do that we damn well can't do over the last several months. And you've increased that to 3,650 interactions per day. When that household comes home, has dinner, they're all in schools, the two parents are teachers, 3,650. All it's going to take, all it's going to take is one positive COVID-19 case for things to explode. A, in that household, B, on that street, C, in that school, and we're right getting back to where we started. Think about that. Uh, Lucy's been waiting patiently. Lucy, you're on uh, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. I'm just calling in regards to everything, too. I'm a parent of two. I have one in high school, one in elementary. And to be honest, just listening, you guys are inflicting so much fear for something that has um, a survival rate of over 99%. I'm not trying to be ignorant here. but I'm not saying you are. Think, no, 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 no. Oh, thank you. Sorry, just because I know some people will attack me for saying that. But um, it didn't matter what the Ford or Lecce said there would have been a problem regardless. Someone would have not been happy. And you know what? So many um, um, professions and different sort of uh, sectors have had to adapt to this new normal. Me, myself, I have to wear a mask all day at work and interact with many different clients. And it's not comfortable. I agree. But you know what? It is what it is, and we have to do it. So there has to be there has to be given pull pull on both parts. It's not just the government. It also has to be the teachers' unions that have to be reasonable. So I agree. Maybe having thirty kids in a classroom is overreaching for elementary. I agree. But you know what? There has to be a medium. It's I agree. That, I agree. There's a medium. I, I agree. There's and a there, medium. And and, and you're and there's right. Too much fear. There's too much fear. Well, for something that is like no. You know what? It's the truth because. We've we've learned that they're not on surfaces. Everybody was going crazy cleaning, like you said. They're gross. You're right. You're right. Surfaces and 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 also in Scandinavian in countries like Sick Kids pointed not Sick Kids. Sorry, the um the petition stated like Sweden and Denmark 
Yes, they have smaller classroom sizes, but they have not mandated masks indoors because there's a lot of scientific study behind it as well that they are not um, as useful as for some reason here we say that they they say that they are. So there's you know what I mean? There's so many different sources of information that it's hard to like sort of differentiate what is the right way or the wrong way. And I'm just afraid that we have created so much fear in people that I got you. I I totally, I I totally got you. I, but I appreciate the phone call and I appreciate your perspective. And here's what you're right about. I don't agree with everything you said, but you don't agree with everything I said. So we can go, we can go there and have a conversation and it does, you're right. And it doesn't, it, it, and I like that. That's a healthy, absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for the phone call. What I'd say to you is this, you've got a scenario where there's so much more that's unknown about kids as spreaders. Every day a study comes out and says, well, we know kids aren't getting sick. If 11-year-olds were dropping dead, we wouldn't even be having these conversations. And we I wouldn't even be at a workplace right now. And you wouldn't be where you are right now. We'd all be huddled in our basements. But they're not dropping dead. And the risk factor has stuck in terms of dying and death to the people we are most worried about first. People with pre-existing conditions, people with breathing problems, and our elderly. Okay? And, and really, it almost isn't politically correct for a government to to come around, because we're not all in this together. If you're a 70-year-old, you're in this a little differently than you are a 28-year-old. The 28-year-old's worried about getting you, the 70-year-old, sick. The 70-year-old's just worried about hanging on and getting through this. But the bottom line is, we've got a scenario where there's more unknowns than knowns. So we need to check boxes and protect from the unknowns. Okay, and you're right. We're all going to have some level of, of PTSD about this, some more than others. When I get that vaccine, Lucy, when I get that vaccine shot into my arm, I'm putting on Cool in the Gang celebration and I'm partying all the time like Eddie Murphy. I, I could go on and on and I'm getting it. The second they tell me I can get it, I'm getting it and my wife's getting it and my kids are getting it. And not everyone's going to feel the same about that. But I will tell you this. There's more than enough unknowns about this. And there again, the credit that the high school plan is getting compared to the elementary school. I don't have elderly parents living with me. OK, I'm not going to see my parents when school starts again, if my kids are indeed going. But I'm going to give it a shot here. I'm going to give it a shot. OK, and it's tough to put one foot forward sometimes when you're scared and you're nervous. But the premier disavowed his own plan yesterday and sick kids didn't get the recommendations put into the plan. Several of them. Experts said, you got to do this, got to do that. Sick kids says this is the way to do it. The government says, thank you, sick kids. This is your plan. But it really isn't. And they said that yesterday. Hey, thanks for listening. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget, I'm in for Kelly the rest of the week. And you can catch the show every weekday starting at 9 a.m.